welcome back to another episode of Sociable Socialism. I'm Joe Loudguy. Last week we were on a break. Uh, this week we're back, rested, and ready to go. We'll be discussing impeachment, since that was just announced today. And we'll also be going into Bernie Sanders' policy uh, to tax uh, billionaires effectively out of existence, what the details of that are, and why it's a really, really, really great idea. Uh, all that and more on today's Sociable Socialism. Stay tuned. Well, thank you for tuning back in. As I said, uh, last week I was on a break. Uh, I guess I, 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 I like to talk about things when I'm passionate, and there was nothing in the news last week that was particularly uh, either enraging or uh, something that I found uh, impassioning uh, enough to discuss. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of news. There was actually too much news last week. Maybe that was related. Uh, regardless, uh, I'm back and ready to go. Uh, this week, uh, as I said, we're going to cover uh, the impeachment inquiry that was announced today, and in my opinion, it is long past due. And uh, that isn't to say that there isn't some healthy, spirited debate about this topic on the left, and uh, the general thought process of people on, from the left who do not like the idea of impeachment is that it is... There's a political cost to every action you take in politics, whether you're talking about trying to get a bill passed, whether you're talking about trying to get a Supreme Court justice appointed. There's a cost in terms of energy, time, and resources that you can devote to getting any one particular thing done or addressed. And the concern amongst people on the left is that this is, and I'm quoting from a literal tweet, uh, guaranteed to stall and appease people and produce nothing. So that's a nice distillation of how some on the left feel uh, that this is not an effective use of our time because it is, first off, there is skepticism among people on the left that the Russia uh, investigation uh, was as significant as others in the more liberal side of the spectrum, the more centrist side of the spectrum, MSNBC, CNN, etc., uh, Rachel Maddow's of the world, there is concern that the investigation was overhyped, uh, didn't produce anything definitive, and gave Trump a win uh, because if it doesn't produce what you say it's going to produce, that there's active collusion with a foreign power, then what you've effectively done is wasted everyone's time, resources, and distractions from what Trump's actually doing, his actual horrendous policies like the border wall or uh, reigning uh, or re reneging on our uh, promise in the Iran uh, deal. So devoting resources to that investigation was re very divisive amongst the left as a topic. And then, of course, following from that investigation were calls for impeachment, uh, which only further shows this divide, where people on the left feel like this is not a good use of our resources, we should be trying to get policies passed. And I am, I'm willing to hear that argument out. I feel like it is, it can only carry so far though, is how I feel with that argument. 
because it I hear the concern that there is a political cost to doing this. You're right, there is. And that is separate from any constitutional obligations you may have uh, as the Speaker of the House, for instance, in uh, holding the president to account, any uh, checks and balances. There is, again, separate from what the Constitution says you're supposed to do in a situation like this, the cost is real. And some people would rather see that cost applied towards getting bills passed. Now, that is to say nothing of the fact that after Nancy Pelosi uh, and the Democrats won in 2018, uh, the House has passed something like 60 bills. They just haven't made it out of the Senate because it's a, a legislative dead zone right now. Uh, so it isn't like they haven't been passing bills first off. And, I, and I'm also the first person, by the way, to say we need to get rid of Nancy Pelosi. She's not a progressive and shouldn't be in the position of power she's in. So I'll be the first person to say that I don't like Nancy Pelosi. I'm not defending Nancy Pelosi. But I would be lying if I didn't say they weren't getting bills passed. Again, it's just Mitch McConnell in the Senate is a legislative dead zone. And Chuck Schumer is useless and can't hold his caucus. So... Uh, that's another part of the reason, though, that people don't want to devote time to this is because behind Nancy Pelosi is Mitch McConnell, uh, who will not uh, allow anything to come to a vote. Uh, the Republican-controlled Senate is not going to impeach Donald Trump, most likely. It, it, it requires 60 votes, and you've got a majority of Republicans. So unless... All of them, I mean, it, I'm not going to even entertain. It's not going to happen. Mitch McConnell in the Senate is not going to impeach Donald Trump. So acknowledging that, why then waste the resources and effort? Well, that's what I'm here to say, is that I support impeachment for a variety of reasons. Uh, but first off, what should you impeach Donald Trump over? Is it the emoluments clause violations, where he is in control of his hotels and then frequently stays at them on the taxpayer's dime? Or the fact that foreign countries are able to come and stay at those hotels and effectively pay him through the booking of whole floors in those hotels. Uh, Saudi Arabia famously booked a whole floor at the Trump Hotel uh, and put money into his pocket as a form of foreign bribery. Is that something you should impeach over? I would argue, yeah, that's pretty impeachable. Uh, what about almost going to war with Iran, frankly, over a deal that they were honoring. Uh, what about lying about Venezuela and uh, attempting to start a coup there? You know, I mean, these are all things that we agree. We like hands off Venezuela on the left is pretty much agreed. There, there is no division on that. And the movement to cause war in Venezuela was centrist Democrats and the Republican Party writ large. That was their uh, desire, and of course it never really got off the ground because Nicolas Maduro is not popular, and people saw through it, and I'm glad they did, because we don't need another regime change war. But uh, are these things that you should impeach over? I would argue yes. Uh, what about drone strikes in Afghanistan, Iraq? I would argue yes as well. Now a lot of people would say, so wait, you think we should have impeached Obama over these? I do. They are war crimes in my mind. And my hope is that Bernie, uh, should he win the nomination, and as I still suspect that he will, uh, there have been polls coming out recently that put him in a distant third, but uh, one or two polls don't really mean much of anything to me. 
what we're looking at on a national writ large scale is that Elizabeth Warren is slightly ahead of him. And she may be pulling ahead, but I think that she actually has a low ceiling. This is a bit of a segue off the impeachment question. I think she has a low ceiling because the majority of her support, if you poll what the demographics of her support are, it is well-educated, wealthy, white liberals. The Obama coalition, basically, of the left and the wealthy white liberals uh, has fallen apart with the left going with Bernie and the wealthy white liberals going with Warren. And... I am willing to bet that the left is is stronger and has a message that will transcend into more people's lives. Uh, I might be wrong. Uh, it really depends on how many wealthy white liberals make up the voting block. I suspect they still make a large majority, but some of those people also vote Republican or Kamala Harris, Klobuchar, etc. So again, I think Warren has a low ceiling, truth be told, uh, comparatively speaking to Bernie, who has a high floor. Uh, he uh, has the highest number of polls amongst people that are only considering one candidate. So that means that he has, among people that would consider another candidate, he has the fewest of those, which is a good thing. It means he has the, the deepest bench, as it were. Uh, but this is neither here nor there. Let's get back to the impeachment question. Donald Trump has committed several impeachable offenses, and I haven't even mentioned the Mueller report and his findings, which I do think are uh, damning enough that... Uh, I would uh, impeach over. I, I, I certainly don't think it's nearly as blown out as Chank Uger of TYT or Rachel Maddow uh, sensationalized. Uh, and I would say this Ukrainian business where he was actually pressuring a foreign power to investigate Joe Biden, I would say this uh, Ukrainian scandal is actually more significant and took far less time in investigations <laughs> for us to get to the heart of than the Mueller report ever did. Uh, so... It is clear to me that he has accepted money from foreign powers, that he's willing to do favors for foreign powers, that he's willing to put pressure on foreign powers and withhold aid to get what he wants out of them. These are all reasons to impeach, but none of those reasons are enough for people on the left who still view this as a distraction and would rather us focus on actual bills, especially because we are a year and three months away from an election. Why not just let the election happen? But there is a political cost to not impeaching. There really is. There are mechanisms built into the Constitution to address all of those impeachable offenses that I went over. I also didn't even get to the border, uh, the border wall crisis, the border crisis of caging children, which is also impeachable in my book. Uh, so it it is. There are there. Are, mechanisms within the Constitution that are expected uh, or were expected by the founders to be used to deal with an individual like Trump, someone who just ignores subpoenas, ignores oversight from the Congress. That mechanism loses value and power if it is not used. Just like how the Congress is supposed to be the institution that declares war, if the Congress defers to the executive branch and allows the executive branch to declare war through executive ac action in these conflicts we have around the world, we haven't declared war since uh, technically uh, the war in Afghanistan. And uh, that was the last time anybody really had a vote on this. And uh, the war in Iraq is an illegal war. And every war that's happened since then, whether we're talking about Libya, uh, Syria, and uh, the list goes on with our shadow wars in Africa, 
uh, none of those have been voted on by the American or by the legislative branch, which is the branch that is most uh, beholden to the public. So if you surrender that power, as the legislative branch has done, well, then it what is written into the Constitution as a safeguard towards democracy loses value. The same can be said of impeachment. If you choose not to use it for a president that commits these this many violations in plain sight, then it ceases to be a powerful tool to hold presidents, to, presidents accountable. And you do need to have some kind of a tool to hold a president accountable. Now, there are many on the left who don't even like the idea of having a president or having this kind of concentration of power in a uh, republic, for example, where you elect officials and would rather have more of a direct democracy where we voted on everything. And uh, there are those that I would suspect on the more centrist side that said that's not feasible or practical in a country this size. I think that it is that that, that is a legitimate debate is I guess what I would say. I, I can see the merits of both sides of that argument. I personally think more democracy is always a good thing and whether you're talking about on a small scale like a business or whether you're talking about a country. I would never say that less democracy is something worth fighting for. <laughs> But I can see why it would be cumbersome to have 330 million people vote on things. So, regardless, uh, when you have these constitutional checks and balances, if you choose not to exercise them, if you choose to ignore why they were created in the first place, the very like sort of underlying spirit of why that law is there, if you just choose not to recognize that spirit even exists then it ceases to hold any kind of power. And then presidents can, in fact, commit these kinds of brazen violations. Again, the only reason why Barack Obama was able to comfortably increase our two wars to seven is because the die had been cast with George Bush and uh, our intervention in Iraq. Uh, and that set a precedent that Obama was able to use. So we have to consider this impeachment through that lens, I would say, is that this isn't about Donald Trump. This is about the principle of the matter, which is that there are enough impeachable and violation violations here. We should impeach for that reason alone. And a lot of people might not find that very inspiring. They might find that to be sort of a waste of time and energy. And I understand that thought process. I think I laid it out pretty effectively, is that you know, you only have so much political capital to spend on any one issue. But it has gotten so flagrant that let's say they didn't impeach. Let's say that Nancy Pelosi continued to stand in the way of this. Uh, I feel pretty confidently that it would come back to bite us. Like, it's, it's, it is a institution of power that isn't intrinsically bad. The ability to impeach a rogue president president is not an intrinsically bad idea. I think it can be used uh, poorly, but I also think that it is, in theory, almost necessary. Uh, so to not use it in this case is to pretend that you don't have the power to do anything about this. And furthermore, Sam Cedar makes a pretty good argument uh, when he says that uh, until Nancy Pelosi holds a vote with her caucus uh, and readies impeachment procedures, it's on her. 
after she's done it, it's on Mitch McConnell, and then the Republicans will own it. If they don't want to impeach a president who's broken the law, they'll own that, and then they'll be on the defensive going into the 2020 election. So I actually think that's a good point. I think that putting the uh, onus on them to hold up the impeachment procedures is entirely a reason in and of itself. It's not, see, it's not wasting political capital if you can make use of it. So that is my second point, I suppose, against people that uh, don't feel impeachment is a useful uh, effort to undertake is that it, it can be a useful effort to undertake if you know how to phrase it. And those same people would say, this does not excite the American people. They don't particularly care. The American people largely, if you poll them, a majority of them anyway, think Trump has probably broken the law. So the American people aren't exactly uh, unsure about what Trump has done here. And it's so obvious and brazen that I think it would actually be very discouraging to the base of the Democratic Party. Uh, and it shows a sign of weakness. Like, like, it shows that the Democrats aren't willing to do things. And even though they have passed those 60 bills, people still think they haven't done anything since they've gotten in there because, of course, Mitch McConnell won't let them do anything in the Senate. So why exacerbate that perception even more by not impeaching when you have every reason to? Like, take your pick of why we should get this guy out of there. Now, other people might feel that the Ukrainian uh, issue is small potatoes compared to all the other reasons to impeach him. My reply to that is, who cares, as long as he gets impeached? I mean, an issue is what you make it. Medicare for all is a winning issue, but it's also something that we desperately need. But it's also a winning issue. It's really punchy, easy to digest for the public, and making it into something that people can absorb, making it into something that people can rally behind, is useful in and of itself, even separate from the benefits that you get from a Medicare for all system. Similarly, the Russia probe was largely overblown, didn't produce the uh, smoking gun that Rachel Maddow and Shane Huger promised, but if you make use of it in the right way, you can still use this to get people to come out and vote for you. Because whether you like it or not, there are a lot of people in the Democratic base that do find that stuff interesting. And, uh... I personally, again, think it's enough to impeach him over caging children and letting them die in his watch or his uh, refusal to help Puerto Rico after the hurricane. I think these are plenty enough reasons uh, because he's clearly shown a hostility towards anyone with a darker than white skin color. You don't want to have a president over a multicultured nation openly racist towards some of the people that live in it. You just can't do that. Uh, how can you expect him to defend the rights of everyone if he doesn't see everyone as worthy of rights? It, it, it's paradoxical. So there, whatever reason you think that the Democrats should focus on getting him out of there is inconsequential with what motivates them to act. You know, an issue is what you make it. And I think that the impeachment inquiry, if used correctly, can actually get votes to come out. I think it can make the Republicans look weak. I think it can make Trump look weak going into 2020, which will help because his base uh, cares very much about their perception of him, and he cares about their perception of him. Uh, they, I mean, right-wing males in this country are the most insecure people on the planet. They feel the need to chest bump. <laughs> they feel the need to drive large trucks, walk around with big guns. Like everything about them is this sort of overcompensation uh, that they need to, to thrust out there. 
If you have Donald Trump on the defensive, accusing him of crimes, if you're making him have to constantly sputter a new lie every day, he doesn't look very strong. That's a good thing. That is a good thing because it discourages his base. It does not invigorate them. As some people on the left are saying, this will just invigorate his base more. In my mind, his base is going to be more invigorated if you choose not to impeach because then they go, see, there's nothing to impeach over. If you impeach him and it gets, gets through the House, even if the Senate doesn't pass it, you can say, no, we recognize you broke the law. We recognize it. You can't do this. That's a good thing. It shows them that there is crimes committed here and they should be held responsible for it. And if they want to be partisan and uh, play coy with their constitutional obligations, that will reflect poorly on them with voters. Fact. I, I just don't see how it's a bad play to go for impeachment. And even beyond that, I think my first point was pretty clear. It's necessary. Because if you don't use it at some point, the mere threat of impeachment loses value because impeachment will never there's nothing you you could ever do to be impeached over so why have it in the constitution basically let the president commit any crime that he wants that that cannot be allowed to stand we don't elect kings in this country that's not how it works we fought against that very institution because we saw how problematic it is to have somebody in a position of power removed from from any kind of accountability you, you, we don't want to reintroduce that into this country. So I think that's probably, in a bit of a disjointed way, my thoughts on impeachment. I, I don't think that people who argue from the opposite end are bad people. I just don't think you're thinking this through all the way. Uh, it, it's easy to get discouraged in politics. It's easy to see everything we do as... <laughs> as fruitless or pointless or a waste of time but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing and in this case i think impeachment is worth it i think that not only is it worth it we are obligated to do this from a democratic point of view or the democratic institu institutions don't mean anything so uh, moving on to my next topic bernie sanders announced a new wealth tax and uh, this is pretty exciting stuff. Let me go ahead and pull this up. So I've got it right in front of me now, and it says that uh, at the top, today the United States has more income and wealth inequality than almost any major country on Earth, and it is worse now than at any time since the 1920s. At a time when millions of Americans are working two or three jobs to feed their families, the three wealthiest people in this country own more wealth than the bottom half of the American people. Over the last 30 years, the top 1% has seen a $21 trillion increase in its wealth, while the bottom half of American society has actually lost $900 billion in wealth. Uh, so moving on to uh, how the wealth tax would work, uh, this tax on extreme wealth would have a progressive rate structure that would only apply to the wealthiest 180,000 households in America who are in the top 0.1%. It would start with a 1% tax on net worth above 32 million for a married couple that means a married couple with 32.5 million would pay a wealth tax of just five thousand dollars the tax rate would increase to two percent on net worth from 50 to 250 million three percent from 250 to 500 million four percent from 500 million to 1 billion 
5% from 1 to 2.5 billion, 6% from 2.5 to 5 billion, and 7% from 5 to 10 billion, and 8% on wealth over 10 billion. These brackets are halved for singles. Under this plan, the wealth of billionaires would be cut in half over 15 years, which would substantially break up the concentration of wealth and power of this small privileged class. Under the current law, the IRS is already required to assess the net worth of the wealthiest Americans when they pass away to calculate the estate tax liability, uh, to calculate estate tax liability. A federal wealth tax would require the IRS to make the same assessment on an annual basis for the wealthiest Americans. Steps would also be taken to streamline the process for purposes of the wealth tax. And then for assets that are difficult to appraise, the Treasury Department would have the option of allowing taxpayers to have appraisals done periodically instead of annually. The Treasury Department would establish the average rate of appreciation for several classes of assets. Those appraised only every few weeks would be assumed to appreciate in the intervening years at the average rate established for their designated class. So this is a great idea. This is a fantastic idea. Now, a lot of people are saying that he borrowed this idea from Liz Warren. The truth is Liz Warren borrowed it from him. Bernie had been advocating for something like this since 2014, but this is significantly more than he's advocated for in the past. So he is... I would not say he's copying Liz Warren. I would say he's one-upping her, though. I would say that her idea was good and his idea is better. And this is the kind of arms race of policy that actually you'd want in a primary. So uh, as much as I find the Washington Post, which, you know, again, I did an episode on them, framing the discussion as Bernie is stealing the idea from Warren to be dishonest, I don't mind framing it as they are trying to one-up one another, and that's fine. Look... I, I wish there were more Bernie Sanders in the race. I wish there were more people like him. There is only one Bernie, unfortunately. But I would say Liz Warren, while she's a pale imitation, is the closest to him. Uh, because certainly Kamala, I mean, come on. You know, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker. I mean, the list goes on and on. You know, John Delaney. These are not inspiring people. A lot of them would find this kind of a wealth tax to be uh, insulting, frankly. Uh, this is not something that they would ever even consider proposing. So I don't mind, even if Liz Warren is just copying Bernie, if the two of them push each other to be better. If she feels the need to one-up this and make a better policy, great. Please do. Like, let's keep this arms race of ideas going. Uh, Bernie is still my candidate, because I think that somebody who has taken no billionaire money and someone who has said in tweets that if there's going to be class warfare, it's about time the working class won that war. Someone who's going to say something like that is far more likely to carry these policies through to their completion. You know, I mean, Warren is courting donors behind the scenes and attempting to uh, play to both sides of the fence, as it were, uh, because she wants to keep the insider Dems and delegates happy so she can secure the nomination, but also keep enough of a populist base that she gets enough of the vote. Uh, so to those of us on the left, we see through it, but the upper middle class, well-educated whites... They love this kind of stuff because it's what Obama did, and they loved Obama. Obama is still insanely popular 
uh, for a president that I would say governed as a conservative Republican and uh, a moderate one, but a conservative Republican nonetheless. And that's by his own words, by the way. He said he would be considered a moderate Republican in past years. He was saying it as a way to show how far right the Republicans have gone, but it's still his words. By his own definition, he is an 80s Republican, which I think is is true. And uh, he's still insanely popular with this class of people, uh, white, well-to-do, uh, well-to-do, well-educated whites. <laughs> Try saying that 10 times fast. Uh, and that is Warren's base, and there is no doubt as to why that is. She has that same kind of wonky, uh, Ivy League education, uh, vibe, and she speaks to them and their interests. Uh, so it's fine that they prefer her to Bernie. Uh, she speaks to what they want. Uh, I, I would expect that uh, of any demographic. Somebody somewhere who likes throwing binders at their staff probably loves Amy Klobuchar. She's speaking to your policy set. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to push back on Warren from, from her left and challenge the assertions that she and Bernie are the same, which they are not. And I find it stunning that the Warren supporters want to simultaneously make the argument that Warren and Bernie are the same, and then in the same breath go, well, she's not as far left as him. It's like, what What are you... Pick one. Are they the same, or is she not as far left as he is? Because I know what my answer is. She's not as far left, and that's why I'm going with Bernie. Is because I... I don't even view the left-right construct as particularly useful. I would argue that the left-right construct... Uh, is mostly beneficial to the right wing because it adds legitimacy to their very illegitimate points. Uh, you've got the right wing saying this, the left wing saying that, that helps them as opposed to construing it as, hey, we want to advocate for a democratic uh, division of resources and power and you guys want to advocate for a variety of undemocratic ideas, whether it is cycling wealth to the wealthy whether it is starting regime change wars, whether it is banning drugs. And all of those ideas, I mean, all of those ideas are representative of an agenda that is not popular in and of itself. And yet, they are viewed as if they are one half of a whole. And as if the far reaches of both ends are equal to one another. The far left and the far right are therefore equal with one another because they're both far, which is... Absurd, because the far left, or what comprises the far left in American discussions, uh, which is considered to be Bernie, is actually right in the center of what most Americans want to do. He represents the majority of Americans' values and desires on different issues. Most Americans want to see taxes on the wealthy raised. They don't care if the billionaire class is taxed out of existence. Nobody should have a billion dollars. Every billionaire, like every homeless person, is a policy failure. Someone who doesn't have enough money to survive and is being left in the streets to die versus someone who has so much money they're sitting on it like a dragon. These two things are extremes. Like, it shows a failure of policy. And they should not... It, it is incongruent with a just society, frankly. To allow someone to hoard like that. We consider hoarders of cats or hoarders of garbage 
to be unhealthy, to be sick. I would say people who hoard wealth are sick as well for their own benefit. It is actually arguable that we should take the money from them for their own health because it's not healthy for a single person to have that much power. It is not healthy to give someone, if money is speech, as the Supreme Court has argued, then it is not healthy to give them so much speech. Like, they shouldn't be able to have a billion more speech than the average person does. If all votes are supposed to be equal, one, vo- one, one man, one woman, one vote, if that is the uh, argument, then why do we give billionaires one person, one person, one dollar, one free speech? Well, I don't have a billion dollars worth of speech. You know, like it's not, it, it it's incongruent with the democratic spirit and ideas uh, of this country. I would say, and we need to tackle it and address it head on. And Bernie Sanders' wealth tax is just that. And a wealth tax to that end is constitutional. According to Bernie Sanders' website and discussion about this policy, since 1916, we have taxed the inherited wealth of the richest people in this country through the estate tax. For more than 100 years, we have taxed investment income from capital gains and dividends. In order to reduce extreme inequality, we must also establish a tax on the net worth of the top 0.1%. Bruce Ackerman and Ann Alstott, two highly respected Yale law professors, have both written in support of a wealth tax on the richest Americans in this country. Here's what they wrote for the Los Angeles Times. I'm not going to read that article. Uh, The quote that he brings up, however, is, In the United States, anti-tax zealots will try to use the Constitution to cut off debate about a wealth tax before it begins. Article 1, Section 8 grants Congress P-L-E-N-A-R-Y I want to say this, plenary, plen, plenar, plenary, I don't know what that means, but I've spelled it for you. Power to impose any and all taxes, duties, Im, imposts, and excises, but it contains a special limitation on capitulation and other direct taxes. Uh, no, capita, cap, C-A-P-I-T-A-T-I-O-N. Capitation, I guess. Under this little known... Proviso, such taxes may be imposed only if they are apportioned among the states according to their population. This provision was part of a compromise with the slaveholding South, and its intention was to prevent the North from imposing a head tax on slaves because this could not be apportioned equally among the population of all the states. Given its origin, this provision has consistently been construed very narrowly by the Supreme Court, which has found only head taxes and real estate levies to be within its scope. Given this history, it is extremely unlikely that the justices will cite the founders' original compromise with slavery to bar a tax that would serve the cause of economic equality and democratic legitimacy. The Roberts Court may be conservative, but it is not quite as reactionary as all that. I would argue that since we have uh, since we've had Trump's appointees, that may have changed. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh is the epitome of partisan. I mean, he is... I, I cannot see him going for a wealth tax or viewing it as constitutionally allowed. And let's not forget Supreme Court justices are themselves quite wealthy and quite powerful. Uh, being one of a council of nine is quite wealthy and powerful in and of itself. Uh, so uh, let's not forget 
that it is entirely possible that they will view a wealth tax as unconstitutional. I would uh, be very interested to see what their arguments for that would be. And frankly, even if they rule it as unconstitutional, man, I don't know if that's going to stop Bernie Sanders' movement. I don't. I really don't see how when millions of people, like you can have nine people tell 300 million people what you're doing is not allowed, but the nine people are still outnumbered, you know, like at the end of the day. So I really don't know how much the power of the Supreme Court is going to be sufficient to hold back the movement that Bernie Sanders is building. He recognizes that you need a movement to get this stuff passed. He recognizes the power of that movement. And I, I'm willing to place my bets on the movement. It's not going to be easy, certainly, but I'm willing to place my bets on the movement that when you have enough people demanding something, even the Supreme Court and its institutionalized power is not going to be enough to hold back uh, the, the will towards equality that seems to be at the heart of what we're demanding. And everything he's saying here is right. First and foremost, I agree. Uh, he says, going forward, uh, this proposal would ensure that assets owned by the top 0.1% are taxed the same way as much of the wealth owned by the middle class is already taxed. The reality is that we already have a wealth tax in America, the property tax, and it disproportionately impacts working class families. I pay property tax. I hate it. It is more money than, it's like $4,000, which I only make about, well, I'm unemployed, but I only made about $40,000 a year. So I, I, that hits me where I live. That's 10% of my income. If you own a house and you make $200,000 a year, $4,000 isn't that much. $40,000? That's 10% of your income, man. Like, that's ridiculous. So Bernie's absolutely right. This is the kind of uh, tax that you need to even out society. To make society more functionally democratic. So this is a fantastic proposal. I'm so excited to be a supporter of this campaign, be helping it out. I encourage anyone who listens to this podcast to uh, go on Bernie Sanders' website. Uh, you can sign up to do calls for him. Uh, you can sign up to go door-to-door for him uh, and try to raise awareness amongst uh, your local voting districts. Uh, on how to uh, on the importance of Bernie's policies and how they can also help out uh, with getting Bernie Sanders through the primary Uh, uh, his internal polling which I suspect is more accurate than the mainstream media who has consistently had their thumb on the election uh, as I had my episode of the Washington Post running their articles in favor of Joe Biden I mean it's very clear uh, where the mainstream media wants this vote to go Uh, So I view Bernie Sanders' internal polling as being probably the most honest because he is the most honest politician in America. And his internal polling has him winning in Iowa and New Hampshire. So I'm not bothered by these recent polls that have come out. And proposals like this are the reason why people like me support him. I I consider myself to be an honest person with a fair amount of integrity. uh, And I, I can't think of any reason why Bernie Sanders would uh, hold back on going after the wealthy at this point. People who have doubts about whether or not he'll follow through, you don't say things like this 
and isolate yourself from the wealthy power centers if you later intend to go back to them after having won in spite of them. The motivations just aren't there. So I actually think he's our best chance of making these policies a reality. And uh, I just, I'm so proud to be a part of this campaign. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I will be doing another episode next week. We'll be back from our break pretty regularly going forward. Uh, And, uh, you know, in solidarity. Let's go make this happen, everybody. Burning 2020.